Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So here we are then. This morning we are greeted by loads of headlines about how Britain is finally open again after the government confirmed that Britain is going to be finally allowing foreign travellers from Europe and the United States uh, to come here uh, and do business, uh, do pleasure, do whatever, go to the theatre, uh, go shopping, go to Harrods, go to Selfridges. Even Neil Ferguson from Sage is optimistic that this madness will all be over soon although not everybody agrees with him. Meanwhile, the doom-mongers, amongst them, of course, the lockdown fanatics, are all predicting that it's reckless to allow anyone to come here from foreign lands, except, of course, if they arrive on dinghies on our beaches. The hypocrisy of the left is really quite incredible, isn't it? Because apparently, uh, if you haven't been jabbed in this country, it could be dangerous to let people in. I mean, what is going on? Why would you say that? Why would you even suggest that anyone coming here with a, probably a negative uh, test of one kind or another, who has probably been vaccinated, is in some way a risk. These people don't want life to continue as normal. These people do not want life to return to normal. These people are what can only be described as troglodytes. They want to stay living under a stone, in a cave, in the dark for the rest of their lives. Well, I'm not one of them, and I don't think neither are you. And I don't think we should be encouraging them to even have a say on this kind of thing. This morning, we will examine just what it will mean for the economy, what it will mean for business and for the tourist trade in this country, which I've been banging on about for a very, very long time indeed. Up first, we'll be asking Brendan Chilton what he makes of it all. Has Boris Johnson just kick-started Britain? And another more important question, what is next for the Tory party? Because a big piece of the Telegraph today suggesting that the Conservatives might be losing their heartland. Something the Labour Party knows an awful lot about. 0344 499 Coming up, we're talking bike lanes as well after new government guidance to councils is warning them not to rip them up until they've been there long enough to work. You see what they're doing, don't you? They're saying, put a bike lane in and just leave it there until you see the benefit. Don't worry about how long that takes. Just leave it. Don't worry about the congestion it costs. Don't worry about uh, the cars that are packing up all over the place. Don't worry about the pedestrians who can't actually walk safely without realising which way they have to look. We'll be talking to Nick Freeman about that, who is, of course, a lawyer uh, and a campaigner against 
bicycles and e-scooters being driven and ridden around our cities without any kind of license whatsoever. Damien Collins MP is also going to be joining us with his take on the online safety bill. Helen Dale's here as well. She's going to be telling us about the state of play today. She wants to talk about flat earthers and other myths abroad. And we might even touch upon the NHS, which today welcomes its first female chief executive. I just discovered today, by the way, that 70% of the 1.5 million people that work for the NHS are women. Why is it not being run better then? We're always being told women are better at running things. I don't know. You tell me. Uh, of course, uh, because it's Thursday, Helena Nicklin is here. She's popping in with some Albarino to taste in a new and improved Thursday club. And as ever, of course, we want to hear from you as well. What are you hearing? What are you doing? Where are you going? Uh, what are people telling you? You tell us and we will tell everyone else. We had some great calls yesterday. I'd like to have some great calls today as well. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And it is time, uh, without further ado, to say a very, very good morning to our favourite Labourite, Mr Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network. Brendan, how are you doing? Good morning, Mike. I'm very well. And how about you? I'm very well indeed. Uh, I'm sick to death of all these people saying, oh, don't let anybody come here from abroad. It might be dangerous. I mean, what's wrong with them? You know, we get an opportunity to allow people to come and do business here. People that need to open up the theatres will be welcoming tourists to London and other parts of the country. You know, we need tourists in this in this place that we live in. Uh, and we also need business. So so I welcome the fact that, that the government has finally moved to allow people to come here. I'm 100% with you on this, Mike. I know there are a lot of people uh, who've been on full pay uh, working from home, spending their life on Zoom. Mm. But let's forget the wealth creators in this country, those in the private sector, have taken a real hit over the past year, uh, particularly the tourism industry. Uh, you know, anyone's, all anyone's got to do is look around London and see the number of tourists collapsed. They're non-existent. Mm. Over the past year and that's affected all sorts of people from people that give tour guides to restaurants cafes hotels and all the supporting businesses and industries and that's the same around the whole country uh, it's been a complete disaster and so to have uh, the people coming to this country again uh, able to spend their money uh, is a great thing for this country a great thing for the tourism industry and these moaning minis uh, that don't want this to happen. Well, frankly, you know, shut up and go away. No one's listening to <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. And also, these presumably are the people that never go out anyway because uh, they don't spend money in restaurants. They think that it's better off staying at home, having dinner parties. They don't go to the theatre, really, because they don't want to mingle with other people. I think there's genuinely a group of people in this country now who are actually antisocial. They're not really actually behaving like human beings. Oh, they are. And, you know, they've always been there. We've known they've existed. You can always identify in a meeting or in a social setting someone that, you know, is sort of slightly awkward and doesn't really like being there. Well, now they're running the country. Mm. Uh, these people have got control. They're, you know, they're anti-fun. They're anti-going out. They're anti-hanging out with people. They want everyone to sort of live at home on celery and water, doing nothing fun <laughs> or dangerous. And we've, we've got to beat them. We can't let them rule because uh, it will destroy the economy. And, you know, frankly, after two years of being locked up, we all want to get out and have a laugh. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I'm talking to more and more people, Brendan, who are telling me about things that they've been doing lately, going to concerts, going to see bands, going out uh, and mingling with lots and lots of other people. You know, no restrictions, no testing, you know, no uh, mask wearing. And it's a thing of great joy to a lot of people. It is indeed. And it's uh, especially, you know, I think, particularly for older people that have been really locked up over the past year, and of course young people that have had their early years destroyed, there's a massive sense of relief. Uh, I, I went into it, well, the first day, uh, we, we didn't have to wear masks anymore in mm. supermarkets. 
I felt like I was back at school having a fag behind the bin <laughs> badge, you know, going into a supermarket with a mask on. Yeah. Well, I'm the but, same. I mean, last Thursday, for the first time, funnily enough, you'd think I would have done it on the Monday, but for the first time, I actually walked into a bar and, and walked up to the bar and ordered a drink. And it was ludicrously satisfying. I couldn't believe how happy <laughs> I was just by doing that one single thing, you know? Uh, it's, it's tragic, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, this is what we, we've come to, though, and we've got to get to a point now where, you know, we've had the pandemic, most of the country's been vaccinated, the rest of the world is starting to catch up. We can't stay in these measures any longer. And for those people that are sort of, you know, getting off on being locked down mm. over the past two years, well, you know, your little lockdown fetish, you can keep it, but the rest of us are getting back to normal and so is the rest of the world and not before time. Yes. Now, I, I came across an interesting piece of information yesterday, which I thought I'd share with you. We got a call uh, from a guy who was a consultant in the sort of uh, HGV lorry driving area because there was a story yesterday that Tesco's are offering a thousand quid as a bonus for people to come and be uh, long distance lorry drivers. And apparently it turns out that an awful lot of lorry drivers have left the country because they were from places like Lithuania and other parts of Eastern Europe. But they not only left the country because they wanted to, they left the country having received a, a a bounce back loan from the government and having put themselves on furlough for a while. So, I mean, I don't personally blame them for doing that, but the government has clearly got to get to grips with some of the amounts of money that they're handing over to people, some of whom um, are obviously not from here and who are disappearing off back to their homeland with uh, a load of cash from, from, from our taxpayers fund. Mike, I think when some sort of audit or investigation into how the furlough money was actually spent is undertaken in this country, there are going to be amazing headlines mm. in our newspapers. Uh, I, for one, have noticed over the course of the past year, uh, just in my small town where I live, the number of people having their drives redone, yes. uh, the number of people having conservatories built or their windows done or new cars, mm. you know, the fact a lot of people have had a 20 percent pay cut uh, they've been able to afford all these yeah, funny that. It, it is very funny isn't it and i i don't necessarily think uh all of that furlough money has gone uh to people that actually need it i think there's been a lot of people uh, that have done quite well out of lockdown and quite well out of furlough now that might be a controversial thing to say now but i bet in a year or two uh when any investigation is undertaken uh, we'll find that a lot of this money has actually made quite a few people a lot wealthier yes. than they were before. Well, I seem to remember even in the very early days of the first lockdown and the first furlough that there was already about 40 to £50 million pounds identified as having been fraudulently obtained by various people who had set up companies specifically for the purpose of getting government money. And that's quite right. I, I recall reading those uh, headlines as well. And uh, I know in my locality there have been people that have been on furlough, but who have also been going out to work uh, at the same time. Mm. So the system, when you, when a government says, oh, here's free money, uh, you're always going to get people that try and rig the system. Yeah. And that really was the folly of shutting down the economy, which in my view was unnecessary. Mm. Uh, it's piled up the debt on this nation. We've had quite a lot of fiddling and corruption going on at the top of government and also uh, with people receiving furlough. And now we're all going to have to pay for it. Yeah. Uh, and those people that are saying, oh, let's keep the economy shut, they are just delaying the fact that we've got to pay this money back. You cannot continue to borrow, 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 spend, spend, spend without someone coming along and saying, hey, up, mate. Where's this money going? Where's it coming from? And how are you going to pay it back? And we're, we're reaching that point now.
Exactly right. And by the way, when is anybody going to get to grips with the idea that the NHS is constantly selling us a pup? You know, because one of the reasons for lockdown was continually said to be the fact that we couldn't allow the NHS to be overwhelmed. Well, now that we're out of the pandemic, we're told that the NHS is being overwhelmed again uh, on the basis that they haven't got enough people to work in it because they've all been pinged and they haven't got enough beds because they've been all moved apart and spaced apart and they haven't got enough people to do all the background uh, of all the big um, waiting list operations that require doing. And they've now just appointed Amanda Pritchard as the NHS England chief executive. Apparently it's the first time a woman's been put in charge of it. But the b- bottom line is, you know, the NHS needs massive reform, doesn't it? It does, Mike. And, um, you know, the National Health Service is there to serve the health and well-being of the population and to protect the population. Uh, we do not exist to preserve and protect uh, the NHS as an institution. Um, I think we have got a a looming NHS crisis, and this is in part because we've locked down the economy. Loads of people have had muscle deterioration, mental health. We read every day the piling up of appointments in cancer and leukaemia and all sorts of other things that haven't taken place. And frankly, now what we've got to do is get the NHS back to normal, treating people, treating patients, get more beds in those wards, get the staff back, end this ridiculous pandemic Uh, that's taking place. I know the health secretary has said there'll be changes in August, but frankly, we need it to happen now. Yes. In terms of the NHS as well, Mike, we've got to look, I think, at the backroom staff. We can't keep just saying more and more money all the time, because as we know, throwing money at an issue doesn't always solve the problem. Yes, there is a question of resourcing, but at the same time, it's allocation of resourcing. Mm. And that's what both main parties Uh, need to focus on in the months and years ahead. Absolutely right. Brendan, stay with us for a moment. We're going to take a short break because, of course, we are talking to Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network. We're talking about business because business is back and it needs to be back and it needs to be working. It needs to be open. Britain needs to be open. Let's face it. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB Plus and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Brendan, wanted to touch upon something that's quite close to your heart as, as a Labour man because interesting piece in the uh, Telegraph today by Alistair Heath who basically is calling the Tory party rudderless, uh, labour light. He says they don't stand for anything, they haven't really got any Conservative values anymore and as we come out of Covid, they are in danger of actually losing their heartlands. And he says that rather like the Millennium Dome being the kind of uh, symbol of everything that was wrong with New Labour... Uh, this marble arch mound might end up being uh, the symbol of everything that's wrong uh, with this government. Well, uh, I, I have every sympathy for the people that live and have to go by that hideous ice. I mean, what, what sort of maniac would come up with the idea of dumping a load of earth in the middle of marble arch? It's a pretty beautiful, gorgeous setting and just make it look like a dump. It looks like a what we used to call a bing in South Wales, you know. Well, I gather it cost a couple of million pounds. I mean, if it's that's easy to make a couple. <laughs> I'm in the wrong job. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, if anyone wants a pile of mud dumped outside their house and a bit of grass put on it, give me a ring. Absolutely do- right. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Absolutely unbelievable. It is. I mean, I drove past it a few weeks ago and saw this kind of metal structure, and I assumed wrongly that it was some kind of a, um, you know, a, a seating arrangement for some kind of concert. I thought they were putting seats in so that you could watch something. I didn't know they were building or dumping a lot of mud there. 
it, it is quite ludicrous. And I think it is sort of, you know, symbolic of the, the sort of madness that we've endured over the past few years. You know, we've all been locked up. Oh, and by the way, someone thought it was a good idea to stick that in next to Marble Arch. Um, but, but politics in this country at the moment, Mike, I, th I think you're quite right to say that there, there does have a sort of sense of a rudderless lack of mm. direction. Um, from both main parties, actually. I know Keir Starmer is battling uh, within the party against certain factional elements that want to take us back to the Corbyn era. Boris Johnson doesn't appear to be a conservative. He appears to be sort of more new Labour. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, I think, are feeling quite despondent and disengaged. It hasn't helped uh, that both main parties over the past year have agreed on almost virtually every, every major decision uh, relating to COVID and the economy and the opposition to it has come from uh, some Conservative MPs and one or two Labour MPs on the backbenches. Mm. Uh, and it's really not healthy uh, for our democracy uh, when there is such a high level of apathy amongst voters and when a lot of people can't really see the difference between the two main parties. Well, exactly right. Because when it comes down to Allegra Stratton, who apparently is now the new spokeswoman on uh, climate change, telling us what we should do when we put our dishes in the dishwasher, you know, as Alistair Heath points out, there's no real kind of ideological message there. It's just we might as well be being run by a load of bureaucrats. And I fear that if it was Keir Starmer's law, it'd be exactly the same. Well, well, the... They have treated us over the past year and continue to treat us like we're all infants in a primary school needing constant nurture and attention and being told what to do and how to live our lives. Mm. Our message to government, whichever party's in power, is get off our backs, clear off yeah, exactly. the country and let us as individuals lead our lives without some nanny wagging her finger at us. Uh, that's where we need to get to, I think. Um, and just touching on the point you, you raised there about, you know, the climate issue, again, the consensus around in both parties is pretty much the same. And we keep talking about decarbonisation. No one is talking about the costs of decarbonisation that are going to be transferred to you and to me and every other individual and business in this country. And we've got to have a serious discussion around that because the cost implications are huge. Yes, I think it really does need to have some kind of a fresh, clean broom uh, to sweep through the corridors of power and actually remind them as well. And I've been saying this all this week because it's been particularly winding me up that, you know, we pay them to do a job for us. We do not require them to tell us how to live our lives because we haven't given them that gift, frankly. It, this this is completely uh, fundamental, really, Mike. I believe totally in the sovereignty of the individual. If you want to drink, drink. You want to smoke, smoke. You want to eat chips, eat chips. But if you want to go to the gym and exercise and be extremely healthy, do that. Right. We shouldn't have someone above us telling us all how to live our lives. And when I read last week that uh, the government were going to be rewarding people uh, for eating healthy and monitoring what we all eat, I thought, get lost, yeah. you know. Turn up at number 10 and say, Boris, I want to see your diet menu for the week. What did you have for breakfast? What did you have for lunch and tea? How yeah. many brands did you have before you went to bed? No. So you shouldn't be doing that to us. And frankly, I think particularly after this pandemic, people in this country need to realise, as you said, the MPs, elected officials, they are our servants. We are not their servants. Right. We pay them. And once we get back to that as a fundamental starting point, I think people will be far more resistant 
to being nannied around by some bureaucratic Bonaparte in Whitehall. <laughs> and when whatever next, maybe some marriage guidance counselling from Boris Johnson. I mean, you know, I don't really talk, I'd be very interested in any of that either. Thanks very much. Brendan, thank you. As ever, to talk to you uh, is always a great joy. CEO of the Independent Business Network, only sensible man uh, on the Labour side of politics. Brendan Chilton, uh, we'll have him back on again very soon. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, let us talk to Justin Urquhart-Stewart, co-founder of Regionally Investment Platform, uh, because he's going to be talking to us about the good things that are coming now to our country, now that the government has basically said that people from the USA and from Europe can come here to do business, to have pleasure, to go to the theatre, to open up the economy. The newspapers this morning are all saying, the economy is open, Britain is open again. Justin, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Pleasure very, to be here. Thank no, you. Very nice indeed to have you on. Um, is this going to be a boom, uh, a boom time for British business, do you think? Because, I mean, no matter how many Zoom calls you can do, and we're doing one right now, I'm afraid, yeah. um, you know, there's no substitute, really, is there, for flying across the Atlantic and doing proper business? You're still going to have to do face-to-face stuff. Um, and whilst we've learned with Zoom now how to do it, it's forced us to change. So we're not going back to as we were. It will adjust, but it will mean now... Uh, that people can realise they can operate a lot more efficiently without all the office space they had before. So it's going to change. Do we see a recovery? The answer is just as we saw last year, when we saw being being too enthusiastic, everyone going out for supper in uh, in the autumn. Mm. But we will see another boost like that. Because those who are in work and have actually got, and they may have been getting furlough money, they haven't been buying so much. There's only so much stuff you can buy from Amazon. So Britain is actually sitting on a lot of cash at the moment. So quite a lot is going to be spent initially. So you'll see a sort of V-shaped recovery. Mm. Um, but after that, that's the big question. How do you get the economy growing after that? And that's not uh, you know, an easy answer. Mm. The good news is the global economy is growing quite well, faster than expected. And the IMF think that we're going to be growing faster than most of the other leading nations. But that's only short term. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting in some ways because you would think that given what's happened over the past 18 months financially to, to, to all sorts of parts of the economy, that we wouldn't have survived as well as we have. But actually, it's proved that the government uh, and its policies have failed to sort of dent the economy in any major way. And we're actually more robust, perhaps, than we thought. Well, the key issue is one thing has really changed in this country from uh, when I was a lad growing up. And the answer is we now set up many small businesses. We set up more businesses than Germany and France put together. Mm. And that doesn't mean they're all success. There'll be a lot of failures. But it means we're much more entrepreneurial. We're willing to take those risks. And that is where most people are employed, not by large corporations, um, but actually the smaller growing Mm. businesses. And that's where the government needs to focus its attention, not in terms of grants or anything like that, but real tax incentives like the enterprise investment scheme and things like that. And that will help develop, particularly the one of the key areas really good at, and I don't mean financial services, but technology. Mm. All those technological hubs, you know, Silicon Roundabout, Silicon Gorge, uh, Bridge, Fen, Glen, you can name them. <laughs> but they are the areas that are growing fast with high value businesses. Where we're bad at is actually getting the finance to get them to grow from little baby businesses into larger businesses. Mm. And what happens in the meantime is the Americans with private equity come in, scoop them all up. And there goes our technology and there goes our jobs. And obviously you're involved in in regions to some extent. I mean, do you think it's important and and will it happen more readily now uh, that regional businesses are given sort of the incentives like the levelling up supposed programme that nobody really quite understands, nobody really knows what that means. But there is supposed to be this kind of theory uh, that outside of London is where it's all going to be happening. 
Yeah, waiting for levelling up, I think, could be the most to make paint drying uh, <laughs> a more interesting yeah. subject. Actually, what's going to happen is you need to make sure, let me go back into a bit of history. In 1945, there were 45 stock exchanges in Britain, and now most of them are absolutely useless. The last one closed in Glasgow in 1994-95. I know I was working on it at that stage. Right. And that's where we started AIM, which isn't a very good market. Smaller companies' markets, expensive. But what we need to do is find more mechanisms so that local people can invest in local businesses. Mm. You'll actually make a better return in the provinces. Why? Because you don't have the overheads of London. Um, and we need more investment going into those regions, not government money. We've obviously got to replace the European money that was there, but actually making sure that private investment money, not just individuals, but all the institutions as well, putting money, not for charitable work, but into really good businesses in technology, and that's where Britain can succeed. And what do you think happens, Justin, to many buildings in London, many of the office buildings like Canary Wharf, um, many new buildings going up opposite our very office here, just over by the sort of cheese grater, the walkie-talkie. There's that new building that's gone up, which has got facial recognition in the lobby. It's all very high-tech. But, I mean, there's hardly anybody in the, these buildings at the moment. What do you think is going to happen to them? It'll be a huge change. You're going to see a new design of a flat, which is going to look remarkably like someone's office, because that's what it was. Um, and uh, you're going to see a surfeit of those sort of flats uh, in areas of the city, and particularly in Canary Wharf. You go down to Canary Wharf now, and it's, it's not deserted, but it really ain't busy. Mm. And you go underneath Canary Wharf to where the shopping centres are. Well, last time it was about 25% of them were shut, um, but I suspect that's now probably higher by quite a margin. So this whole structure is going to have to change, not just in the cities in London, but in other cities as well. But also to add to that, the high street's changing. You know, a lot of the old uh, brand names were used to being uh, some of them gone bust. People like Coluccio's and uh, Jamie Italia, they didn't go bust because of the pandemic. Mm. They were going to go bust anyway because they had too much debt from private equity and we were heading for a slowdown. So a lot of these businesses were going to disappear anyway. Yeah. So high street's going to look very different. And who would be living in these flats, though? Because my worry is that it's all very well saying you can convert, you know, three floors of Canary Wharf Tower, uh, one Canada Square into into sort of living accommodation. But it's not going to be affordable. It's not going to be cheap, is it? No, it's not. And also, you see, the demand we have for housing in London, say, go back 10 years ago, uh, coming in from overseas was really very spectacular indeed. And you know, so you saw other developments around, not just in the city, but elsewhere down in Hammersmith where I am, huge development there, all went to Southeast Asian uh, people who are fine, glad they're investing, but none of them are living there. Mm. As far as they're concerned, it's just a long-term investment, getting money out of their country. Yeah. So you're quite right. Who's going to be living in these things? Well, some may be private investors from overseas. Um, some will be people who like being in the city, but there's going to be a surfeit of this. So I'm afraid be wary of property companies at the moment, and also a lot of those financial services companies restructuring their offices so when they get the next break, break, break clause in their leasing, I suspect you'll find that they'll be reducing it very significantly indeed. Yeah. It's not just those offices, all those shops that go with it, the pret mangers and all those other elements which are vital to make a city work. Right. And one of the things we've also seen, Justin, recently, um, relatively recently anyway, is the sort of buying of these businesses by, as you say, sort of investment vehicles rather than actual, um, you know, manufacturing and employing uh, businesses, people who are just literally trying to make a fast buck and then sell it on. So, I mean, is that a trend that you think is going to continue? Sadly, yes. Now, a lot of this is private equity. Um, but uh, you also have these strange businesses called either spam or spam, special purpose acquisition vehicles, mm. um, normally run by spits, but that's another <laughs> issue. Um, but you have good private equity and bad private equity. The idea of private equity is they take your business, they inject you with debt. By the way, that's your debt, not theirs. 
um, and they look it to grow fast over three years and then flog it off. Or maybe sometimes they just take the assets and flog that off. So asset stripping, you used to call it in the 70s. There are also good ones as well, the, you know, the white knights, not the dark knights. And you can tell them because they normally look for longer term investing, five to seven years. Three years is far too short. Uh, five to seven years, longer term equity investing. And that, after all, is what most people need for their pension money. Not short term gambling money, but long term investments give compounding the dividends over years. That's how families get wealthier. But it takes time. Yes. Now, I know that uh, uh, experts like yourself don't often like to be asked to make predictions. But if you would, if you were asked to make a prediction about where we will be this time next year, Justin, what do you think we'll be doing? What do you think we'll be seeing? What will we be witnessing? What will the sort of mm. economic landscape be like? Well, certainly, I think by that stage, we will no doubt have another variation of the pandemic. But let's assume we can manage that. The worst one would like to think, touch any form of wood you can find, the worst may well be over. And we learn to live with COVID, uh, which is always a horrid thing to say. But you know, we live with other uh, awful diseases and ailments as well. And we have to manage our way through it. Mm. Um, this time next year, the economy will be growing, but at a slower rate, not at six and a half to seven percent, probably down to more like three or four percent, which is probably about the long term average anyway. So we shouldn't get worked up over that. But unemployment would have gone up because all those people coming on furlough, well, some will still have jobs, some may not. Uh, so the government's got to encourage more businesses set up to uh, scoop up that surplus labour, uh, which will be coming on at the moment because of the pandemic and all of that mm. uh, and uh, other areas in terms of we've lost a lot of uh, seasonal workers. You've actually got shortages in key areas. A lot of people noticed in restaurants and bars and things, it gets longer to get served. Mm. There's only one person doing it. Um, so that'll change as well. OK, great to talk to you. Justin at stewart thank you very much indeed, co-founder of Regionally Investment Platform. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Damien Collins, Conservative MP for Folkestone and High, Chair of the Super Committee, created to examine the draft online safety bill. I'm sure uh, one of the things he's definitely not is a flat earther. Damien, very good morning to you. Good morning to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Fascinating. Uh, we were just talking, actually, about a new book that's out, which is called The End of the World is Flat, which is a sort of satire written by Simon Edge, all about social media um, and how kind of ridiculous it has become in the way that it's kind of involved with an awful lot of people recreating history, redesigning history, telling you misinformation and expecting you to believe it and sort of generally piling on people and being objectionable if you don't agree with them. Absolutely right. And in some ways, you know, the, the, the flat earth debate is a good place to start because it also reminds us that you know, fake news disinformation has always existed. People have always had conspiracy theories. But what we see now is that social media can be hijacked by people to create a totally distorted impression that lots of other people believe these conspiracies as well. And it's the experience of social media, which is so unlike any other media we've had, where it becomes a personalized channel where people can be radicalized to believe extraordinary things, some things that could actually could be personally harmful to them. Yeah. And the online safety bill obviously covers a great many areas. So what does it mean for you as, as, a, as an MP? You're chairing the committee that's sort of going through it line by line. What is it that you're looking for it to do, if you like? So, so the, the bill itself creates a, a mechanism whereby an independent regulator can hold to account social media companies for whether they take down and remove harmful content and illegal content. And they take it down because it's against their own terms of service or it's illegal and should be removed anyway. So an independent body will have the power to do that. And crucially, the power to go into the big tech companies and demand access to data and information as part of their investigations in a way that we just can't do at the moment. Right. I, I think they're... Sorry, go on. No, I was gonna, no you carry on. <clears throat> So and I think there are, there are two levels to this. There's one that we're quite familiar with, which is people post bad content that they shouldn't post, uh, and, that should be, and there are cases where that should be removed. And if you see like the, the racist abuse of the England players after the uh, European Championships final is an example of, uh, of that. There's another level to this too, though, which I think is really important to the work we'll do on the committee looking at this bill, is it's not just that t- social media companies are ineffective at removing this sort of content. Sometimes they actively promote it. Sometimes their recommendation tools are pushing it at people. And that is the thing that makes social media different. It's not just that bad stuff exists on those platforms that isn't taken down. It's that those platforms have a business model that's based around driving engagement, and they're not fussy enough about what engagement that is. And it could be engagement of harmful content and conspiracy theories. Mm. And if they think that will hold them on the platform, they'll just direct more of it at people. And that's, that's something I think we've got to stop. And I think some of the decision making, which I think you and I probably both know is not based upon uh, rational thought, but it's based upon some kind of algorithm uh, which is out there. You know, because we've obviously experienced an interesting side of social media here at Talk Radio when YouTube Mm. took our channel down uh, for no apparent reason, while they left all sorts of other stuff up, which was far more harmful than anything we were saying. And we were obviously being um, regulated by Ofcom, who didn't have a problem with anything we were doing. But YouTube took it upon themselves to decide that they didn't like what we were doing in the same way that I've sometimes posted interviews that I've done uh, on an Ofcom regulated radio station on Facebook, uh, at which they give a warning out to say that some of this information may not be true. And I'm thinking to myself, well, hang on a minute, you know, who says that it may not be true? Some, you know, spotty guy in, in Palo Alto in California. 
Well, that, uh, that's right. And I think you've highlighted a really important issue, which is that you're a media organisation regulated by Ofcom. You know, that doesn't mean you don't have free speech in your programme and your guests don't have free speech. But nevertheless, there's a regulator that oversees mm. the work that you will do. And I think for organisations like that, they need to be uh, not caught up in the provisions in this bill. We shouldn't see this bill as a way of trying to censor journalism and freedom of speech. It's not. It's, it's creating rules for social media companies to deal with illegal content and the most harmful content. But what, what the bill says is that there should be a general exemption from these provisions for media organisations, which themselves are, are already separately regulated. Yes. And one of the aims of the bill is to threaten fines of up to 10% of annual global turnover, which is an awful lot of money, I would imagine, uh, to some of these big American companies and these big mm. tech companies. Is that something that you believe is achievable? I think it's necessary because I think without those sorts of real financial sanctions, I think the tech companies would see being in breach of the code as a minor thing. You know, would, uh, if they levied a very small fine that for them, you know, a fine of several million pounds for them is kind of, you know, barely noticeable. Um, so uh, these companies are worth, you know, tens of billions of pounds. Mm. So it's got to be a meaningful fine, you know, to, because sadly, I think the, the, the court of public opinion doesn't hold that much sway over them. They're not too bothered about being exposed as having done, done something bad in the, in the media because they don't think it affects their bottom line. They don't think it affects their profits. Um, and I think that's why you have to have the power to levy very large fines for companies that are guilty of the most serious offences. Yeah. And, and the companies that are put in that position would be companies that have not only been in breach of the rules, but have got made it quite clear they've got no intention of ever complying. And therefore, in that situation, the regulator's got to be able to intervene in a meaningful way. Right. And of course, one of the protections that you would want to improve on, I presume, is, is the protection of children. Because a lot of children, if they have a smartphone, and many do at quite a young age, can pretty much access anything they want because they can either pretend to be older than they are or they can simply sign into something pretending to be somebody else they can invent an, an email address you know what i mean it's not it's not that yeah. difficult if you're quite a smart kid which most kids are uh, they're, they're going to be all over it i think that that's right and i think it's there's a question about how age verification works for children accessing social media we all know that children younger than 13 do that and that they um, there are, there's very little to stop them doing it. There's very little the tech companies do to, to make that hard. And therefore, there is that question about how do we improve uh, age verification so that um, we can protect young people from content that they shouldn't be exposed to. There's something else, too, which I think is, is really important. And, uh, you know, I, I know for my own, my own children, my, my daughter's 14, you know, they will say that, you know, there's, there's a lot of content that's recommended by social media platforms, which can be quite disturbing. Mm. You know, it can include images of self-harm. And you've got to say, well, why is that content there? But more importantly, why is that content being directed to vulnerable users and, and children? Yes. And you also want people to contribute um, to your process that you're going through mm. currently. You want sort of public interaction with you. How do they do that if they want to know what's going on? So what we'd like in particular is that because social media ultimately is personal and everyone's newsfeed or timeline will be different depending on their, their data profile and how they use the site. But if people feel they're, being, they're seeing harmful content actively promoted to, for them and directed at them. So that could be if you're on YouTube, it's the film recommended as next up. It could be something in your Facebook or Instagram um, newsfeed. It could be something recommended on For You on TikTok. If, you, if you're seeing something being directed at you, you don't like and you think it's harmful, if you could screenshot that and send it to the, the joint committee, you know, we'll, we'll protect people's personal information and, and their identity. But we want to try and gather evidence of how the algorithms of social media may be actively promoting harmful content and we want to try and gather that 
uh, evidence before we question the big tech, big tech companies about it. So uh, it would be very helpful to us if, if people could keep an eye out for that sort of content and, and let us know about it if they see it. Okay, and the process of, 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 of examining the bill goes on for, for how long? So the, the, it's a, the process has to be completed by the 10th of December. We have to produce a report to Parliament and the government has to respond within eight weeks. And this is the final process of scrutiny before the government publishes the final bill to be debated in, on the floor of the House of Commons. So we'll be holding um, evidence sessions in Parliament from September through to the deadline in the December. Uh, we've put out a call for people to send in written evidence and uh, we, you know, we will produce our report by um, by the 10th of December. OK, brilliant stuff. One final question, if I can, just ask mm. you about uh, your local region, your MP for Folkestone and Hythe, which is obviously right yeah. smack in the middle of where a lot of migrant boats are turning up at the moment. Um, there's an awful lot of interest in this story. Whenever we talk about it, we get a load of calls on it. People feel very strongly about, you know, what's mm. being done. Are you confident that Priti Patel is going to do something, finally do something about this? Yeah, I, I think... She's absolutely determined to do that. And I think what she's recognised is that to be ultimately effective, we've got to change the law. We've got to get rid of this false incentive that exists for people to try and jump the queue into the asylum system by crossing the channel in a small boat. We we can do a lot to try and detect those boats on the French coast before they get in the water. But once they're in the water, um, because interception at sea is so difficult, you're, you're largely waiting for them to arrive in the UK before the authorities pick them up and they, they're processed in the system. So if we want to stop them doing it, we've got to create a powerful disincentive for people to make those journeys, journeys which ultimately have and will in the future you know, cause loss of life. And therefore, we shouldn't accept people doing these, making these very dangerous journeys mm. because they believe that it's a shortcut into the asylum system in the UK. So I think it's right for the Home Secretary to say in the new bill going through Parliament that you, know, you can't get indefinite leave to remain in the UK if you um, enter the country illegally. Uh, in a small boat, and that you may also find that you've broken the law in doing so and may even find yourself receiving a prison sentence as a consequence mm. of it. And I think that getting that message across to say, look, there are safe routes through the, you know, through there are safe legal routes for asylum seekers and refugees to claim asylum in the UK. Uh, when we work with the United Nations on the, to make those routes available to people, particularly people in war zones, uh, and uh, what we know there are displaced people who are seeking uh, safety and asylum. Use the legal routes. Uh, don't try and make these dangerous journeys across the channel. Right. I'm duty bound to give you an idea because I had this from uh, one of our listeners who called in and mm. said, you know, people are talking about setting up, um, you know, schemes abroad, setting up islands where mm. people could be taken. This, I think, actually genuinely quite a good idea. He said, how about a cruise ship? Put a cruise ship somewhere off the, off the shore of this country and everybody who arrives doesn't get taken into land, but they get taken to the cruise ship. It could be secure. It could be good for you know holding women and men and children. It would be perfectly humane. Um, and they could make their application from there. And if it doesn't work, then they haven't actually landed in Britain. Well, I think if it was in international waters, um, that would be the case. I think it's the question of how you would get people onto the ship. Um, mm. They would have to probably come to the country first. So it's an interesting idea, but uh, I'm not... It may not be the most practical. Um, <laughs> OK, well, listen, uh, I, I always say that I'll pass them on whenever I talk to anybody in power, as, as indeed you are, Damien. Thanks very much indeed. Damien Collins, Conservative MP for Folkestone and Hythe, Chair of the Super Committee looking at the draft online safety bill. Uh, as he says, if you have anything that you want him to see, because he is examining everything to do uh, with making sure that social media is a safer and a better experience for a lot of people, particularly children uh, and young people, uh, then you know what to do. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you.
on Talk Radio. Now, we've not spoken for a while, so it's time to welcome back Mr Nick Freeman, uh, a man who has many, many shared campaigns with me uh, and many, many shared beliefs as well. Nick, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. This seems to me to be, um, you know, sort of imposing bike lanes on the populace of this country by stealth, because what we do know is an awful lot of people um, sort of woke up one morning to discover that they lived now in a low traffic neighbourhood or they live now in a road which previously didn't have a bike lane, but now does. And the government are basically saying to councils, if you've put one up, just leave it there. Yeah, uh, what's happened is we've had, we've had very quiet roads during lockdown and uh, councils have thought this looks a really good idea, let's, let's impose some bike lanes. And instead of having proper consultation and working out the statistics, etc., etc., they've just put these bike lanes in. Um, Boris Johnson and his cohorts are avid cyclists. They're obviously, um, and I support the fact that they're, they support the green movement, but it, it needs to be done sensibly and proportionately. Um, and what they're doing now is saying, well, these bike lanes are in situ, um, and if you remove them hastily, we will withhold government money, grants, um, that, that are at the moment due to come your way. So we've got this sort of financial blackmail being imposed on local councils. Uh, and we've already seen many examples of these bike lanes being ripped out shortly after they've been imposed because councils realise very quickly that the problems they cause with emergency services, with local businesses, with residents. Um, and the reality is this. We have very limited road space and there are an increasing number of different types of users. And some of those users, of course, go, are, are environmentally friendly. Mm. And that is going to increase. Uh, and we are going to have a situation in the next nine years where most of our cars or a significant proportion of our cars are going to be electric. And they are going to need somewhere to go. And the last thing we want is to have congestion. We don't want to block emergency services and we don't want to um, cause the, the, the hard-strapped businesses that have endured the pandemic any further difficulties. So we need the consultation, which unfortunately isn't happening. This is a knee-jerk reaction by the government, by councils in imposing these bus lanes. And now it's another knee-jerk reaction in saying, look, you rip them up and you, you're going to pay the cost. We're going to hit you where it hurts mm. in your pocket. So we recognise that we need to work out what's going to happen to our road space. And, and in my view, Mike, what we need to do is we need to look at pavements because they are, of course, designed for pedestrians. They can be narrowed and we could seize a proportion of the, state of the pavement and maybe a smaller proportion of the road to facilitate everybody. Because at the moment, it seems to be, if you'll excuse the pun, one-way traffic. Yes. What we see is a grab of roads. And, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to move towards zero emissions. The, the, the carbon footprint that's going to be caused by brakes, by tyres, by stationary congested vehicles, albeit electric ones, is going to shoot itself in the foot. It's going to defeat the whole purpose of the exercise. Mm. So the government needs to think seriously and sensibly about this and work out with, with the correct experts how do we actually proceed to get the, the optimum result, the best result? Uh, and at the moment, what we're seeing is, well, we just want cyclists, we want e-scooter riders, we want anything that's green and friendly, and we don't really care about the consequences in terms of crime, emergency services, damage to the economy. It, it's a blind approach, it's an ill-thought-out approach, uh, and really, we just need proper consultation, and, the, and then the job's going to be done properly, yeah. because it's such a waste of money to, to put these things in place, then to rip them out, uh, with, with the financial implications that that is involved and then of course the cost to to, to local business um, 
business is there we, we need the business we need it to flourish so we just need to work it out and that, that's not happening mm. i mean we talk about welcoming biz- business back to london you know we've got the government saying to american business people and european business people you can now come to to this country without fear or favor we're not going to make you do quarantine you know however they're going to come here and they're going to find that they're going to be stuck in a taxi without able any ability to get anywhere because it's so congested now in london without it even going back to sort of normal levels of traffic not least because because there are so many buses doing the rounds, not least because there is nowhere really to park for a lot of delivery vehicles. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing more and more, um, you know, parking bays, which were used as delivery, you know, possibilities for, for, for lorries and things, which have been taken over now by the by the bikes. You know, and they've, they've filled the parking bay with a load of these bikes for hire. And so you can't park there anymore. So the only way you can you can stop to deliver stuff is to park in the, in the main lane of the traffic. So everybody gets held up. I mean, there is a consistently, I would say, anti-motorist agenda going on. Yeah, one doesn't want to use the word war on motorists, but in effect, there's a land grab going on. Mm. And, and the, the whole purpose of this is, is to try and improve the environment, which, which is laudable. But the ironical thing is the way gov- the government is doing it is it's actually having the opposite effect because it's causing more congestion and more economic trouble uh, for businesses, as well as things like blocking emergency services and causing huge stress and aggravation for everyone who's trying to use our limited road space. Mm. So they just need to strip it all away, sit down calmly with all the relevant parties and work out how are we going to do this so that it's sensible and fair for everybody. Yes. Why, why should the motorists who contribute massively financially in terms of vehicle exercise license, they contribute in terms of uh, their tax on the petrol, why should they be the ones who are financing everything for the cyclists and, the, uh, and other road users? And that's why I say we need to look at looking at the pavements and maybe taking a little bit of the payments. And also, of course, that there, are, there are things that need to be done because most cyclists and most e-scooter riders will tell you that even if we have cycle lanes, and there are cycle lanes by, by the dozen or by more, they don't, they're not safe. They're not fit for purpose because they're full of debris, mm. they're littered with potholes, and they feel actually safer on the main carriageway. So we've got these lanes. We're taking them off the motorists. The motorists can't go in the cycle lane, um, but the cyclists can go in the motor lane, and that's what they're doing to preserve their own safety. Of yeah. course, they're very vulnerable. And they're again, far more likely to be hurt. We need to protect them. Yeah, so and again, when, when, you, when, we... when you look at certain parts of London, and I'm sorry to those people who are outside of London to be London-centric about this, but it's what I know. Um, certain parts of the West End where they've taken a two-lane a stretch of road and made it into one lane, uh, so they can put a cycle lane in. If you're driving down there, you're behind a bus, and when the bus stops, you have to stop because you can't get around the bus because there's no other lane. So it's absolutely causing chaos for anyone uh, who's trying to get from point A to point B in a vehicle. And I don't mean somebody like me who perhaps could use a different form of, of travel if I wanted to, but if you're a delivery driver, if you're a van driver, if you've got goods to take to places, then you, you have to be in a vehicle. Yeah. Look, we need a huge investment, don't we, in the infrastructure? Uh, you know, if you look at the Netherlands, they, they actually have um, subways for cyclists so that they don't need to come into any contact with the roads at all. Their cycle lanes are absolutely superb, but it doesn't happen overnight and it requires substantial cash investment. And unless the government prepared to do this, land grabbing roads from the, the hard pressed motorists is not going to work. It's going to cause a lot of antagonism, uh, a great deal of financial costs and, and a lot of stress and mental health issues. Um, so we need, as I say, to sit down with various experts and calmly and sensibly and with a, an objective view work out what is the best way of trying to fill everyone's cup. Mm. 
And because since you and I started this sort of campaign to get um, um, a petition going to get e-scooters properly legalised, to get cyclists properly registered and all of that, you know, there's been an awful lot of incidents and accidents involving e-scooters, hasn't there? Yeah, well, massively. And we, we, we did call this, Mike, before, before the e-scooters were actually introduced. Unfortunately, it's going to get worse and worse because um, what we have is thousands and thousands of illegal e-scooters on the road. I know the Meta trying to do something about it, but in a very half-hearted way. So every one of these e-scooters, is it's illegal. It's, they can't be used on public roads. The only ones that can be used at the moment are the ones in London limited to 12 and a half miles per hour under the rental scheme. And even those don't comply with the law mm. because most of them think they can go on the pavement, they can go through red lights, they're up and down on the near side and off side of cars, they are a threat to themselves and their design is da dangerous. And the big problem about them, and I've always said this, and I know you and I agree, is who's riding them? So mm. when they commit a misdemeanor, how are they ever held accountable? And that's why, same with cyclists, you know, you can go to a, any set of red lights Stop your vehicle on red and watch how many e-scooters as a cyclist go through there on red. You imagine that happening with a car. People will be incensed. Yeah. And the law is currently in situ for people to comply, cyclists and e-scooters, to comply with a red traffic light. Do they do it? No. Why not? Because they know they can cycle or ride with impunity because we have no idea who they are. Yeah. That's it. And exactly. that, that has to be wrong. It, it's against the spirit of the legislation. The government need, again, to be sensible about it and not turn a blind eye. Yeah. This problem's not going to go away. And, and then, of course, we have the massive crime, not, not just the, the, the road traffic issues and the design issues of these e-scooters, but we also have the amount of crime that's now being associated with e-scooters in terms of grabbing handbags and grabbing mobile oh. phones. The police can't touch them. No. They just, they've got no idea. And the, some of these e-scooters um, these e go up to 16, 70 miles an hour. So it, it's, it's a thieves' paradise. It's an ideal weapon for, police, um, for, for thieves. Yeah. Um, so we, we need... The government needs to sit down and deal with it properly. And of course, you know, as with many things, this is not happening. There's no, there's no point just playing lip service to what we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And it sounds good because it's green. It's actually having the, the opposite effect at the moment. And um, that's why it, the, the problem needs to be grasped. And one of the big issues as well for an awful lot of people, and cab drivers have told me this, that Kensington High Street, which was one of the more famous um, sort of battlegrounds, if you like, for the cycle lane to be put in, then taken out, and then put back in again, taken out again, uh, was that they tell me that if you're in a, um, um, a wheelchair and you're disabled, you can't get to the taxi because there's a lane between the taxi uh, and the pavement. Uh, which you cannot sort of cross, you can't traverse, because in a wheelchair it simply isn't po possible. So if a taxi driver wants to drop somebody off where there's a cycle lane, it's actually rather can't dangerous. It. It's very dangerous, you can't do it, and I'm sure that actually offends um, legislation that the government put in place to allow proper access to disabled people. Mm. Um, so the government's probably flouting its own laws in terms of designing the roads in this particular way. So what, what we're seeing is a whole host of issues that need to be addressed. Uh, there needs to be a very serious and sensible debate. And it, it's not happening because these things are just being unfolded because it's part of the eco-friendly movement. Mm. And everyone thinks, well, what a great idea. Unless you happen to be a motorist or unless you happen to be an ambulance driver, a police car or, or involved in local business or indeed a resident, suddenly your life's changed and not for the better. Well, that's right. I mean, funnily enough, in my uh, neck of the woods in Southwark, they're about to introduce um, parking bays, paid parking bays in streets where that has never been the case, which is also yeah. going to cause a problem. And it's simply yeah. there, uh, once again, to punish you for having a car and to make well, it possible for them to make more money out of you uh, when they don't need to. 
well, look, the, the motorist has always been an easy cash cow. Um, and that situation is going to get worse because in December of this year, the government are actually going to give councils much greater power to enforce what at the moment are civil actions. So, for example, going into a yellow box, um, something that might be prosecuted by the police, that now will be prosecuted um, by the council. Um, this is going to be wheeled out right across the country. So when, when councils are struggling for cash, who do they turn to? Let's have a go at the motorists. Let, let's see what we can get to them. Because by and large, the hardworking people, they're responsible and they pay up. And we make it attractive for them to pay up mm. because we incentivize it by you know, in, introducing a, a, lo a lower fine if you pay up very quickly. Yes. Um, so, and the motorist contributes in a massive way to the roads and to the tax system already. Yeah. Um, how much does the e-scooter contribute? How much does the cyclist contribute? And people need to be real and accept, look, if we're going to use and share this road space, there has to be a financial contribution and we must be accountable. And I know some people are going to say, well, what about pedestrians? And maybe at some stage, you know, we're going to have to look at that as well. And I know it sounds farcical, but we're in a, we're, we're a small island and we're overpopulated and we just don't have the space. So we have no choice but to make it work. Uh, and if we don't have proper consultation, it's never going to work. And we're going to cause a great deal of antagonism. We don't want people behaving, taking the rule of law into their own hands to try and enforce what they want. And, you know, I, I'm fearful that that's actually, actually what's going to happen if, if councils behave in a way that, in essence, is undemocratic. Well, I've got, you know, a, new, you... I've got a new one for you here, Nick. I've got a, a message from Jim who says, how about these resident-only roads? Uh, he's got a ticket, got fined for driving down a particular road in his neighbourhood because he doesn't live there. Yeah. And, you know, and the trouble is the law's changing all the time. Well, these signs are changing. It's, it's a grab, grab, grab. It's a money grab. And people, of course, aren't familiar with it. So they're going down a road which they've always gone down. And all of a sudden, halfway down, they think, oh, am I allowed down here? I'm not sure. And, of course, as, as far as the, um, the councillor concerned, well, that, that's the easy cash. And, uh, you know, I would certainly encourage anybody who's in that situation uh, to challenge it and say, look, it's my first time, I didn't know. Mm. And in my view, because these laws are being introduced so quickly, um, they, they also need to consider the unfamiliarity that drivers have, the motorists have, because there's so much road signage about. Um, so that certainly for the first offence, particularly if they're outside the area, uh, they're given a letter, a warning. The idea is not to punish people. The idea is to try and make people legally compliant. Mm. Uh, no motorist want to, wants to impose... Um, deliberately a, a financial penalty upon themselves. That, that's not what happens. And yet, if you look at the statistics, you'd be tempted to think the opposite. But it's just because there, 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 there is now so much out there for the motorists. It, it's, it's not pleasant on our roads, but we do need to be mobile and the motorists keep the economy afloat. You know, the, the, there isn't really a viable alternative for many motorists. And that's why the motorists use their vehicles. And, you know, the government are going to have a huge hole very soon when, mm. when more and more electric vehicles are on our roads. But that's probably going to be a conversation for another day. Well, it will be. But, I mean, we know from what Allegra Stratton wrote in The Telegraph the other day, she's now the new government spokesperson for the green agenda, um, basically saying things like, you know, you can uh, help the economy, you can help the uh, planet by doing things like, for example, instead of driving to your shop to do your shopping, just walk. And you go, well, yeah, that's fine. You, but what you if you've got to get six or seven bags to carry back to the house, you know? I don't know how familiar she is with the family shop, um, but, you know, it, it's not a sensible suggestion, is it? It just doesn't work. And, and we, don't have, um, we don't have sufficient buses and alternative means of transport. You can't take those on cycles. You can't take the shopping on e-scooters. So there isn't an alternative. You need a boot. Uh, and that's why people take their cars to supermarkets. That, that's what, what, why we need to. Mm. Um, there isn't an alternative. 
Um, so it's a ridiculous suggestion, isn't it? It really you is. Know, absolutely, it's hopeless. idealistic, and the problem is a lot of this is idealistic, but it's ill thought out. Yes, and, that's the and it's for people who have got quite a lot of money as well. It's not for people who uh, drive vans for a living. It's not for people who are now being hit with as much as a forty quid daily um, charge to drive in and out of London to do their basic job. You know, it's not aimed at people like that. It's aimed at sort of, uh, you know, the Volvo driving, Cotswold living, you know, champagne swilling, iMac owning middle classes. Yeah, it, it, it is. And as you say, it, they're, they're not the ones who are actually going to suffer the most because their pockets can foot the bill. It, it's the people mm. who are possibly at the slightly lower end of the scale. Yeah, exactly right. Can we still get that uh, petition signed? Uh, you want to direct yep, people absolutely, to it? Absolutely. We need to get to 10,000 signatories. Um, I know you've got many Twitter followers. Um, it's on the government website, or you can look, just look at the government website for um, signing the petition. Uh, your name or my name, and it's there. And um, maybe you could feature it on your program so that people can sign it. If yes, I will, I, will, I will there. fish it out. And, uh, we're, 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 we're working, working towards 10,000, which will force the government to consider talking about it, which they're very reluctant to do. Mm. They've already said... We're not going to do it, which is very interesting, isn't it? Because that, to me, recognises they know they've got a problem and mm. this problem is not going to go away. Uh, and pe people need to put their opinions uh, on a petition so that we force things to happen. That's the only way. If you sit down and moan and do nothing about it, then nothing is going to change. No, absolutely right, Nick. We shall get on with it and we shall get there and get those 10,000 signatures because this is a problem, as Nick says, that is not going away. It is a problem that is going to continue to haunt uh, every city and every town in this country because the crazy people who put up things like that mound of earth in Marble Arch are the same people that want to take back the roads, tell you to pay more money to drive on them and to stop you from actually doing work if you have to use a vehicle that takes any kind of petrol or diesel. It's absolute madness. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.